We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 this afternoon. We're going to take one more um, Sunday in the book of Acts, continue our study through there, and then next week we'll begin an Advent uh, series through the month of December and then come back in January. So um, Acts chapter 6 is our text that we'll be reading in just just a few minutes. I've been praying for this message. We have a very, very long text which I won't read the whole thing. And I'm hoping to make a somewhat shorter sermon out of this very long text because I know many of you will be staying after to help us load up the truck and, and make the move. I, I think Jacini has some pizza coming in for you so you can grab a bite to eat and then we'll load up that truck. In the book of Acts, uh, John Stott, one of the commentators who wrote a commentary on the book of Acts, he made the statement in his commentary that the book of Acts should be read side by side with the book of Revelation. There's a parallel between the two books. In the book of Acts, it tells the story of the church and the church's experience in conflict from a sort of human perspective. In the book of Revelation... It gives a story of the church and its conflict with Satan and a sort of the spiritual dimension. And so you see the conflict from two perspectives. As we're studying through the book of Acts, we're going to see people opposing the church, things about from within the church and so forth that are uh, there to destroy, distract, and diminish. And in the book of Revelation, we see the spiritual realities behind it all. So the two uh, make the point that there is a massive spiritual battle that exists between God and Satan. And you and I, the church, are caught in the middle. In fact, it's, it's sort of a fight over us, about us, to destroy us. Satan hates God. And so his aim is that if he could destroy the apple of God's eye, Christians, the church, then that would be a good one against God. So that's his aim. And uh, sometimes we don't realize that or sometimes we forget that, that we are, in a sense, the object of the conflict. Every human being on the planet will be either an object of God's grace or a casualty of Satan's deception, one or the other. That's the battle uh, that we're in. The book of Acts shows us both the glory of being in Christ, the glory of being the church. It gives us a a, a vision, a, a picture that is glorious of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it also shows us the danger of being a disciple, the glory and the danger, but also it shows us the outcome. And all these three things, the glory of being the church, the danger of being a disciple, and yet the, the wonderful outcome of being the church, those three things we need to see, we need to understand, and, and you and I need to live in a constant awareness of all three of those things, to, to lose sight of any, any one of those three dimensions, and we, we lose sight of our mission, 
and we diminish the, the glory of being the church and we become less than what God has called us. If we lose, if we drop our guard and we are not aware of the danger uh, that is opposing the church, we'll be vulnerable and strife and division will come and divide us and hinder the glory of God in the church. Our text that we're looking at this afternoon gives us all three of these, but gives us all three of these in one person. It's a section about a man named Stephen. And in his account that we will read about, we get to see, in a sense, the best of the glory of being a disciple. We also get to see the worst of the danger of the opposition towards being a disciple. But our passage also closes with a sense of hope, and so we're still encouraged with this sense of outcome. So while the glory of being in Christ, the danger that we face by being in Christ, there's a glorious, wonderful, powerful outcome when these things collide. In fact, it's a bit of a, almost like a chemical reaction when the glory when we truly understand the glory of being a disciple in Christ and the glory of being the church collides with the, with the evil and the, and the destructive forces that are trying to destroy the church, when those two things collide, there's like, almost like a, a fresh power of the gospel that springs forward out of that collision. And the plan and the power of God continues on. Stephen is the man. He was one of the seven servants that we talked about previously that served the church. We'll look at today, we realize he's the first recorded martyr in the early church. He was stoned. He died for his faith. Stephen shows us the best of what it means to be filled with God's spirit. We're going to look at a description and how the Bible describes him with the intent that it will inspire and encourage you, me, us together to be like him, to be filled with the Spirit, what it means to have God's Spirit in us. But his story also shows us the worst of the danger. They try him, condemn him, and stone him. But then we'll see the outcome, the ultimate triumph of God's plan. So let's read in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, I'll read to the beginning of chapter 7. I will skip Stephen's sermon. It's long. I'll fill you in a little bit on what it's about. We won't read it, but I encourage you to read it on your own, and then we'll pick up towards the end of chapter 7. Okay, I'm in chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders, and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. 
And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, he preached a sermon. He made his defense. defense. Now skip over me towards the end of chapter 7 to verse 54. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Stephen, the first martyr, the first point, the best of the Spirit. As the Bible described this one man, we are told that he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and full of grace and power. One man, we get a picture of of what it means, the best of what it means to be a disciple, to be in Christ, to be full of grace, a person who's both humble and glad about what he himself has received from God, which flows into a, a disposition of kindness and patience towards others, full of grace. Uh, do not deserve the kindness that the Lord has shown me, but I'm grateful and I'm glad that he did. I've been spared the punishment that I truly deserve and have been given a reward that I do not. This crushes pride, energizes gratefulness and compassion. The man was full of grace. To be full of the Holy Spirit meant it was clear to all who knew him and watched his life, that he lived his life both governed by God and God's word, and that this was his joy. Knowing and walking with God was what energized him and what made this man happy. 
being filled with the Spirit affects our countenance, our speech, our actions, how we treat others, the decisions we make for our own lives. And Stephen lived in a willing, joyful surrender to another. He was led by the Spirit. Someone else was in the driver's seat of this man's heart, something that we've all been called to. He was full of faith. He knew who he was because he knew in whom he believed. He trusted. He rested. His faith was fixed. His heart was filled with assurance, which brings about confidence, which brings about clarity and focus for his life. It takes, an it takes a divided heart and solidifies it and fills it with courage and enables him and us to give ourselves entirely to the Lord. This is really what God has called us to. This is what holiness is, singleness of heart. We're, we're all about one thing. We're about him, about serving him, belonging to him, honoring him. Oh, and Stephen was also full of power. Given the supernaturally, supernatural ability to heal, to perform signs and wonders, this was not strictly limited to the apostles only. Now we have another person, not of the apostles, performing signs and wonders. There were others involved in these supernatural workings, and you could see it in Stephen's life. To know Stephen was to see the power of God on display. Luke is holding up for us an example of the best of what it means to be a disciple. All of these things about him, he had a unique role in church history, no doubt. And you and I don't share in that role. We don't follow in that role. Nevertheless, all the things that are described about this man are things that are yours and mine in Christ. The same descriptions that were made for Stephen could and should and can be made about you and me and even us corporately. I know that we struggle with feeling like we're not getting what we deserve sometimes. Sometimes we don't like the hand that we've been dealt. Sometimes we struggle with the circumstances in our life and we have a sense that we maybe deserve more, and this leads to jealousy and resentment toward others and ingratitude towards God. In those times, we are not filled with grace. But the gospel remedies that. When we look to the gospel, when we rehearse the gospel, that is the power of God to remedy that thing in our hearts that we all, from time to time, Struggle, struggle with. The gospel reminds us and shows us that we do not get what we deserve, meaning we do not get God's wrath for our sins, meaning we are not held to pay for our sins, but we are given forgiveness. We are given grace. The gospel is what produces a grace-filled life it's knowing we're not getting what we deserve we're getting more than we deserve 
when we struggle with wanting to be the master of our own lives, we're not walking in the Spirit. But the sanctifying work of the Spirit helps us and challenges us with the foolishness of relying on our own strength and calls us repeatedly not to rely upon ourselves, not to be the master of our own destiny, but to live a life surrendered to the Lord. I am His. I belong to Him. I am His to spend. I am His to use. He calls. He directs. He determines my step. The gospel shows us the one true son who obeyed the father fully and then how that one true son was highly exalted. And so now in the gospel we have this picture with the outcome of what it means to truly live a surrendered life to the Lord. He did not seek his own. He said, I don't even speak words that are my own. I only speak what I've heard. I do what the Father said. This was the example that we've done. This is the foundation that he laid for us. And we see that. And that gospel produces for us and in us a spirit-led, a spirit-filled life. Many of us from time to time struggle with a divided heart, with doubts, with weak faith that paralyzes us and leaves us unsure and unclear Who are we? And we're wandering through life. But faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And the word works by the power of the spirit to strengthen our hearts, to secure our hearts, to assure our hearts of who God is, who we are, who Christ is, what it means to be in Christ. Again, the gospel comes and heals and produces this kind of life, this kind of heart. We might lack God's power in our lives, but God has given us access in Christ to come and ask, do you you realize God, with this enormous supply, just invites us, just come and ask. I have more than you could even imagine, more than you could ever need. This great storehouse, this great warehouse of, of blessing and power and strength, and we're simply given access this, this simple tool we call prayer. Simply come and ask. You, you have need, come to your Father. And your faith that bids you to come, that, that inclines you to come and say, I'm, I'm lacking something, so I come to the Father and I ask. And that pleases Him. And He's pleased to give you what you need. He knows it before you even ask. He says, come and ask me anyway. I want to hear you. I want to see you come and ask me for what you need. I'm all ready to give it. It's all right there. The supply is beyond your imagination. These are the things that describe this man, which give us a vision and a picture of the best of what it means to be a disciple. It should spur us on. It should inspire our hearts I want those things to be said of me. I want those things to be said of you. And these are the things that have been given and made available to each one of us to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be full of grace, to be full of power, God's power in our lives. This is an appealing picture. 
regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what role you and I play in God's kingdom and building his church, regardless of the specifics of the duties and the places that God calls us to, these are the things that are for all of us that make whatever our role might be enjoyable and glorifying to God. This is the best of the spirit, but he encounters the worst of the danger. Beware. The best often brings out the worst. Okay, so as I'm trying to encourage you to be led by the Spirit, to be filled by the Spirit, and filled with the grace of God, just know the more of that you are, the greater the danger is going to approach you. Sometimes the best brings out the worst. The best of Christianity brings out the worst in the world. It brings out the worst in our enemy, all who and what opposes God. began with Stephen with an argument. Stephen went into the synagogue and preached Christ. And they took issue. It's a list of groups of people that began to debate and argue with him. They didn't like his message. And they began to discuss and contradict and argue with him. The focus of the debate was on the law and the temple. And yet it says that Stephen's message of Christ could not be withstood They could not withstand his wisdom and his spirit. Some of you might be very good debaters. I am not. So if I say to you, have you ever thought you were right but couldn't win the argument? You thought you you were sure you were right, but you couldn't win the argument. Husbands? Anybody? (laughs) Ever been there? I know what that's like. These guys were there. We don't want to give up our ground. We don't want to change our story. But we cannot win this argument. So they go from this argument and resort to the next step, a false accusation. See, Stephen had wisdom and reason on his side. God has wisdom and reason and logic on his side. Isaiah 1, come now, let us reason together. Listen, is your heart open? Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Come now, let's reason together. Your sins are red as scarlet. Would you like to argue? No, they're not. No, they're not that bad. That's not reasonable to me. I don't think my sins are that bad. I don't think they're red like scarlet. No, I have foibles. I have shortcomings. I've made mistakes. Ah. God has reason on his side, but the hearts opposing Stephen were opposing God and would not tolerate the logic and the reason. So they resort to a false accusation. There's more than one way to win an argument. Tell a lie. Make a false accusation, which is where they went to next. That's the next step. 
If you can't win the argument, spew out a false accusation. And now we see the true colors of those who oppose Christ come to the surface. They do not need truth, just influence. And a lie that is just close enough to the truth and said often enough can often work just fine to get the results that you want. We see and experience this all the time in our society. Where truth is set aside, but influence seems to pervade. If there's enough rage, there's enough fantastic aspect of the lie, of the false accusation, and if it's said often enough, many will believe it. And this accusation for Stephen became an official charge, and he's brought before the high priest. It's no longer an argument in the common area. Stephen is now on trial. And when he's brought on trial, we get a description of Stephen's face, his countenance like the face of an angel. I warned you, the more you're filled with the Spirit, the greater the opposition But no, the inverse is also true. The greater the opposition, the greater the work of God's Spirit in you begins to emerge. It works both ways. And now we're getting a little hint of a reflection of Moses when we look at Stephen. And his face is, in a sense, his countenance is like shining. They're they're seeing this man and they're seeing something of God's glory coming through this man's face when he's being falsely accused. And here Stephen makes his defense. We stopped our reading here. It's a long sermon where Stephen goes through all of Israel's history in order to make his defense. It's a long history lesson, which is a little strange. And many commentators criticize Stephen because he's giving a long history lesson of Israel to Israelites. To the most schooled, to the most educated guys are on the on the tribunal, the council that he's giving an account to. They know the history forward and backward, and yet Stephen bends their ear for many minutes recounting all of Israel's history. His defense ties in Moses with the law and the temple and ties them to Christ. This is the point that he's making as he's going through the history. While he's being accused of opposing their history, opposing the law, opposing the temple, he goes through the history and he's going to sow a thread of, of Christ in and through all of Israel's history and lead them to this outcome that Jesus is not in any way contradictory to their history, but actually the fulfillment of it he goes back to Moses and he quotes the point when Moses says God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers and it says in Deuteronomy 18 it's to him you shall listen in other words while he's being accused of contradicting Moses he's actually quoting Moses to say no actually what I'm preaching is exactly what Moses said there's another prophet coming And I'm telling you that that prophet that Moses talked about was Jesus. And Jesus had this same argument with people. To these people that were trying to defend Moses, Jesus said, if you truly believed Moses, you would believe me. 
because Moses spoke of me. Moses and I are connected. I'm not opposing Moses. So you begin to see how Stephen is sort of turning the tables, and this is where it's all going. On one level, Stephen is really not the one on trial. The council is on trial. He traced the temple's history, but makes the point that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Jesus taught the same thing, that the temple was, in a sense, merely a placeholder until he himself would come and be the presence of God dwelling among men. The temple held that place, represented that concept until Jesus himself could show up and say, now I am actually the true temple, the place where you go to meet God. If you want to be in God's presence, you come to me. I'm the temple who gives you access now to God. And so God doesn't dwell in buildings. You don't go to the building to find God. You come to me, the Son. I will give you access to the Father. So again, by preaching Christ, Stephen is affirming the temple. Stephen is affirming the law. Stephen is affirming Moses. So while he was accused of speaking against the law in the temple, he was actually speaking for it. And so now it was they who were actually proving to be against the law and the temple. Then he gets to the application uh, it's very possible that Stephen was preaching this long sermon and all his hearers were smiling and nodding up to a point. He's going over Israel's history, stating all the facts, and everybody agrees with this, and this really could have been quite a good thing. But like every good sermon, you get to a point, okay, now let's talk application, and here he goes. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Well, he lost him right there. He had him. He had him in the palm of his hand. The sermon was going quite well up to that point. But then he hits his application. This is really what's going on here. You council members, you are the ones resisting the Holy Spirit. You had Jesus face to face. You denied him. You rejected him just like your forefathers rejected over and over again throughout your history. And now we see the worst of the opposition to Christ, to God, to the church, to being a true disciple. Enraged, grinding their teeth, crying out with a loud voice, stopping their ears. Okay, can you imagine this, really? I mean, is Luke just getting kind of wild here and making stuff up, or did this actually happen? Can you imagine how peeved, how out of their minds this council must have been, how frustrated, how angry, how beside themselves to be screaming and covering their ears? I can't listen to this anymore. Grinding their teeth. And so they rush him out, out of the city, and they stone him. And even in his death, 
we see the best of being filled with the Spirit. In his dying moment, his eyes are open to see the Savior standing at the right hand of God. And with his dying breath, he prays for the forgiveness of his executioners. It seems like the worse they get, the better he gets. It seems like this collision of the best of God's spirit and the worst of the enemy's opposition come together and actually only produce more and more of grace and more of God's spirit coming through. Stephen looked really good before he had any trouble. He's looking great on his last dying breath. So there we have the best. We have the worst. Third point. We have the powerful outcome. Stephen is stoned. He fell asleep. Another way of saying he died. His time on earth ended. But this, Luke writes this whole account in the context of a broader, larger story that accounts for like a spark that started a spreading forest fire. So this collision of good and bad, this worst expression, this persecution, this enraged council stoning Stephen started something, a powerful outcome. Back in England in 1555, when Mary was queen, known to Protestants as Bloody Mary because of the 288 Protestants she had burned at the stake. One was an archbishop, four were bishops, 21 were clergymen, 55 were women, and four were children. Two of the bishops, Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, and Hugh Latimer, Bishop of Worcester, went to the stake at the same time, chained back to back to be burned alive. Just before Ridley went to the stake, he prayed a prayer of thanks and mercy for England. And as J.C. Ryle wrote, Latimer's last words were like the blast of a trumpet which rings even to this day. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. And indeed, they did. And you and I are here with Bibles on your laps because of lives that were laid down back in 1555, and they lit a candle. They lit a light that did not, could not be put out. Stephen, when he's martyred, two things show up in the text. Luke is just giving us a little insight into where things are going from here. First, we're introduced to a man named Saul. He was there. He approved of this execution. 
He was standing there looking over it. And he begins to go from here and persecute the church. This was the beginning of the worst of sinners journey. He called himself the worst of sinners because I used to persecute the church. But we know Saul gets converted in just a few chapters, a couple chapters. He's changed to Paul, and he becomes this man that God uses to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Somehow out of Stephen's death, there's a man there who opposes God, opposes the church, is one of the most vehement and diligent enemies of the church, and God will convert him and use him. And that man ends up planting New Testament churches throughout the known world, and we read his letters that he's written to the churches on a regular basis. Something was sparked. Something was being formed. Something was being built in that moment at Stephen's death. And from there, the second thing that the text tells us that a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem broke out. And so all the Christians in Jerusalem were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They moved to escape the persecution. But as we will see, God was using their relocation for good. We have involuntary evangelists being sent out, running for their lives, trying to save themselves, trying to avoid the persecution, and they're going into the regions of Judea and into Samaria, and we will see in the next chapter and throughout the rest of the book of Acts that those that were being scattered are being used. This powerful outcome from the worst of situations that the whole church is grieving and lamenting over the loss of a godly man. And yet God's mission continues forward, continues to spread. More lives are going to be saved. The gospel begins its outburst from Jerusalem, making its way to the ends of the earth. And we have a room full of people right here that have been recipients of that very gospel that happened, that spread started in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Worship team, you can come on up. I will close in just a couple minutes. It must have felt like the worst of times for the early church in Jerusalem, no doubt. Everything was wrong. They were sad at the loss, shocked, scared for their lives. Danger was all around them. It is not easy to see and realize what God is doing when the circumstances are bad. But in fact, at a moment that must have appeared to all of them as the worst moment of their lives, the worst predicament they could have imagined, and yet we, as readers, get to read and see and get the broader picture and realize, oh, God is up to something. God is doing something. God is building something. His plan is continuing. We all have a tendency to interpret our lives based on the current circumstances. It seems almost impossible to avoid it, doesn't it? 
What's going on in your life? What are you preoccupied with right now? What's, what are you facing? What, what challenges you? What is your mind, your heart filled with right now? What, what is the, the problems and the circumstances that you're dealing with? Might be some that you're enjoying. Might be some that you're striving against and struggling and wondering, how in the world is God going to see me through this? Friends, there is a massive spiritual battle taking place. You and I are caught up in the middle of it. What can we do? What must we do? Stay filled with the Spirit. Church, friends, Christians, stay filled with the Spirit. Keep yourselves walking in the Spirit. Keep your souls well-fed. Stay in tune with God's will. Be the best of what God's Spirit has for you. Receive all you can from the Lord and walk and live a grace-filled life in the Spirit. Stay alert to the danger. Always be aware of the enemy's tactics, but also filled with faith and courage to face each and every one of those dangers. If you have God's Spirit in you, you have the best of God's Spirit. And you're able to face whatever danger the enemy might throw at you. And keep your hope, lastly, keep your hope on the wonderful power of God that will see you through to the end. Who will fulfill and carry out his plan for you, in and through you, in us as a church. Even if it feels like the worst of times, God is at work present circumstances will at times look very bleak but the end has been revealed and made known to us we know what God is doing we know what he promised he will accomplish so take heart take heart and see what the Lord is doing let's stand together Father fill fill our hearts with faith Lord to see your good hand in and through the situations we find ourselves in, even as Stephen found himself in the worst of predicaments. And yet we see how even in that, you're at work. And you continue to be at work. And you do good things. And you bring about ways for more grace to be brought into more and more people's lives. Lord, use us in this way as well. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Help us to stand strong against the wiles of the enemy and fill our hearts with hope for the good work you've promised to do in Jesus' name.